Welcome to Blue State Conversations. This is our place to discuss the political theory from all sides, bridging the political divides that split our society. Hey, this is Will and Matthew, and welcome to the show. And here's our opening problem. Police dramas are enjoyable for the reason that the villain gets his just desserts. It's satisfying on a deep level when the rapist is caught or the serial killer is chased down and brought in. Simply think of when you heard a headline like, quote, killer of children convicted of all charges and sentenced to maximum term in prison. That's a sweet satisfaction. Now think of, quote, wife who beat husband caught cheating will do jail time. That's not so fulfilling. It's understandable, maybe, but much more sad and maybe even angry. How about, quote, third theft conviction of poor hungry man will lead to prison time. Now that's practically unpalatable. So the question of the show today is, are legal outcomes better than legal process? Matthew, what do you think about that? Yeah, when we're talking about sort of the legal system and the culture that we have around the legal system in America, we prefer straightforward, easy outcomes. We prefer that sentence that says, you know, he's killed children. We've convicted of all charges. He's sentenced to maximum term in prison. I mean, you had the uh, the Christchurch shooter. He was convicted and the, <laughs> the judge told him, there is not enough jail time for you. And you, everyone sits there going, that's right. And everybody, you, you get goosebumps like, exactly. It's like, who's going to defend him? Exactly. No, who is going to defend him, right? It's, it's everybody is on the same page. And it's, it's like eating a jelly donut. It's just so much fun to eat. <laughs> so tasty. Right? It is, right? But then you get into things like the husband was caught cheating and the wife beat him. Well, the husband was cheating, right? You know, you have a certain sympathy with that wife because you wouldn't want your girlfriend or boyfriend mm-hmm. or whoever to be caught cheating at all, right? You, you're like, that would hurt me and I understand wh- where she came from. So you're like, well, that's a little bit more understandable, you know? And it's like, oh, she's going to be in jail for that? Well, I mean, really? He cheated. She did. You know what I mean? You kind of have like, that's a little bit more sad or you're like, you're like, I understand she's going, but he was a jerk. You know, there's that anger component. It's a little bit more complicated. You get the shrug component where people are just like, eh, maybe she deserved it. Maybe right. she didn't. Probably not. Then there's the double standards. You know, there's the one where you have a male teacher who has an inappropriate relationship with a female student where when that person is convicted, everybody cheers And then when the reverse happens, if you have a female teacher with an inappropriate relationship with a male student, people just laugh it off and pretend that it wasn't just as bad as the reverse. Right. So now you've added these complications into just the emotions. It's just not as fulfilling to hear these things said. And when you get down all the way down to that third sentence where you're saying, you know, this guy's hungry and he's just trying to steal food for himself. He's just poor. He he wants to eat. And it's the third time he's been caught, so he's going to jail. So he's going to a place where he'll have food and housing. Well, some people would say, hey, well, that's, you know, some of the response to that might be, are you serious? You just want to jail poor people to feed them? Why can't we feed them outside of jail? Mm -hmm. You see how it's just an unpalatable statement. It's an unpalatable thing. It's, It's a lot more like eating, you know, dried out asparagus. It's just not as fulfilling to digest. So what can happen is 
we can sometimes go the outcome is what we make our decision on rather than the actual process that we arrive on these outcomes because then we go, well, the outcomes are bad, so I want to change the process, not realizing that the process is actually doing different things in a way that's beneficial to society as a whole where you might have one or two things that obviously you're going, like, that outcome's ridiculous. But should we be changing the entire process for that? And I think that's a question that's very relevant in the middle of uh, the BLM, the Me Too movements. You had the you had the Justice Kavanaugh, you know, all those different things. Those things, they were outcomes sought by people. But does the process matter? Definitely. I mean, there's it's it, you just came back to the question of does the ends justify the means? Yeah, it, and I think a lot of our societal discussion has been that if the ends are repeatedly wrong, then the means must also be wrong. Sure. And so I, I, th- I think an important thing to just sort of discuss about that is how these things happen. So when we discuss certain things today, I think what we'll be doing is really trying to present that to everybody listening that there might be more going on than just that headline you're reading. And so it's maybe time to start thinking about why did these things come out this certain way? Why do these things happen in this way? And, and why we might not be feeling fulfilled with the outcome, but the outcome may need to be what it was. And this is why you should get your news even from people that you disagree with. Exactly. That's very true. So, you know, we, we all remember the, the song, I'm Just a Bill. <laughs> everybody that's, you know what I mean? That uh, Everybody remembers that one. And even if you don't remember it, somebody will start singing it the second <laughs> you mention it. And, and it kind of taught how a bill becomes law. So everybody has that baseline. But there are multiple types of laws in the U.S. and multiple sources of law. So an EPA regulation, it's technically not a law. But there's still penalties. So it kind of feels like the law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you, you know what I mean? Constitutional law is different than civil or administrative law. Right. Mm -hmm. So you even have different lawyers for them. Right. Because they're different fields. There's state crimes versus federal crimes where you get prosecuted. All those things matter. And then we just have the common law. Common law is the basis for most American law, but it's not a spelled out part of law. It's a basis that we draw on because we come from the English common law system. But we've obviously evolved beyond when common law was the mainstay which was hundreds of years ago. So a great example is we want to end people driving on their cell phone, right? Everybody, you know, how how many people have died because of this? I get pissed off every time I'm on the road and I see somebody almost exclusively losing their cell phone and I do my best to navigate away from them. Right. And, and obviously how many teenagers, how many, how many people's lives have been ended by other drivers or the driver themselves using these? Thousands. Yeah, it's not... (laughs) Right, so it's a noble goal, right? Well, I have watched a a movie at one point, I wish I could remember the name of it, where a guy consistently was driving over the speed limit, and it was a sci-fi film, and it was said, calling your mom. And I always thought that that was kind of a hilarious way to handle it, (laughs) rather than calling the police, having it call a parental unit (laughs) to be like, hey, why are you speeding all the time? (laughs) 
Right. And, and it, it is funny how, you know, I think I remember I heard this stat one time that 83% of Americans think that they uh, drive better than average, mm-hmm. which is clearly a statistical problem because some of them are not obviously better than average. But generally, most people would agree that you should not be texting on the cell phone. You should not. Even if they do it, they're like, yeah, I shouldn't be doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, they know. So what kind of law would you write? Well, one might say that you should handle it the way that Apple already started handling it, which is that you can't access the phone without saying, I'm a passenger. But then making that be attached to a law and saying that unless you say that you're a passenger, that will persecute you for using your phone at higher speeds or something like that. Right. Exactly. In that manner. But obviously, now we're attaching it to a law because we want to end it, right? We want to end this because obviously... You know, Apple's doing something good, but we, we want to end it, right? Because nothing's going to stop somebody from just pressing the home button, saying a passenger, and then navigating to whatever they wanted to do from the first place while driving. Exactly. We would not have any actual enforcement of that. And if we did the same thing from a legal perspective where we said, okay, if you're going above this speed, the police are contacted, boom. But obviously you just type hit I'm a passenger. And this also would have an issue because I own my device. It is a private device. Why does anyone else have the right to have the data to even make that type of arrest or some type of penalty? You know, who has the right yeah. to access my phone records other than me unless you have a warrant? Exactly. So now we're into Fourth Amendment problem. That's just a real issue, right? So slightly more spicier topic is we're going to support the LGBTQ plus identities. We're going to say that according to the law, gender of the individual is that which they say they are, right? So police arrest someone by describing them as male and black, but that person then claims they are in fact female and Hispanic, even though they appear to be a black male. So had the police mistakenly identified them? Uh, I would definitely say that, well, I can't, uh, speak for all G- LGBTQ plus people, I would definitely say that there are a number of people that would be like, hey, you look this way, therefore they get to say whatever they think you are for their public record, but you don't get to speak to me that way, would essentially be the the definition. So as long as it didn't come out necessarily all that strongly, of course, if it ends up in a court case, it will be made pretty clear. However, then it would be to the courts to decide if the police were being sexist or racist, which I would doubt that entirely, given that they're looking for somebody who committed a crime purely on their physical characteristics. Even if they don't look like what they feel, that doesn't mean that their physical characteristics have changed who they're looking for. Exactly. So, But again, you're wanting to write these laws and you have these outcomes that are good and right. we want people to be secure in their identity. You want that to be the case. But you're now running up into the issue of what does that process then get affected because you have a certain outcome you're looking for? And that's sort of the, the consideration and background behind that question. We're asking, are the outcomes better than the actual process? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we've described two outcomes that are generally agreeable to large amounts of Americans, but we've added problems. We've added things into the equation that we didn't consider before because, again, it was very pleasing. Those first two statements taken by themselves, right? When I say people shouldn't be driving on their phone, it was pushing back. Unless it's a strong, a strong response. Well, uh, no, I'm saying who, who is pushing back on that? No one. No one's going to say that you shouldn't be 
driving while on your phone. They might think that they have the right to do whatever they're going to do on their phone and that nobody can tell them not to, but nobody's going to say that it's a bad, that it's not a bad thing. I, I would argue that nobody's pushing back against that. Right. And is anybody saying that if you decide to agree with a particular identity, that we should just shut you down or that we shouldn't support you? Now, there's there are some people that would agree with that, that you know, the, that's the conservative position. Well, I would go out to say on a completely different set that we have Black Lives Matter as a huge you know, force that's coming out. I don't know anyone who's straight up racist. I don't know anyone who would say that white lives are better than black lives or that black lives deserve to be murdered. I don't know anyone who says those things. So I would say the majority of people aren't racist. So it's that type of thing, that type of response where we have strong movements and sometimes you have situations where, like with the driving, nobody's going to say anything about you know, the other response for a phone being used in the car while they're driving. I wouldn't say that anybody's going to fight those things, but sometimes people could come up with a reason to fight them if they wanted to. So again, we've, we've described those two outcomes. And I guess another scenario to sort of bring up that's more recent is you had Nick Sandman with the the bag had kid, right? Mm-hmm. He had his lawsuit settled. And then you had Greta Thunberg. Yeah, he might be the highest paid CNN employee. <laughs> right, exactly. When he was up, he was being sued for the fact that a lot of people went after him. Well, they doxed him. They, they shared all of his personal information and encouraged people to do harm to him. Well, when somebody said, does that kid, when Reza Aslan tweeted out, have you seen a, anyone with, uh, paraphrasing, have you seen anybody with a more punchable face? Mm-hmm. I mean, really. That's, wow. That's, yeah. And it's funny because it, it, you would never get away with proclaiming violence on somebody from an L, the LGBTQ plus community. And you would never get away with saying that type of thing to somebody from the liberal side either. It's just, it's rude and hateful. Right. Exactly. You had, when Greta Thunberg came up soon after, the response was, hey, you can't attack her. She's a kid. Like, well, you, you just attacked him for being a kid. And they were like, oh, no, 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 no. He, he was a jerk. She isn't. Right. According to who? <laughs> Not according to the video, that's for sure. And we're starting to pick the results we want. We're starting to pick the results we like. Uh, well, And we're starting to pick the thoughts we like before proving that what happened actually happened with virtue signaling. Exactly. You know what I mean? Should kids be under fire for being famous? Should we be saying what kids can and can't talk about being famous? Well, they shouldn't be under fire for being famous, but they will be under fire because they are famous. Hard to hard to disagree with that from my part, but again, I think this is where we're, as a society, having a lot of struggle. So I think a couple of examples might be best on this particular topic because it can be a little bit nebulous in terms of how we should go about thinking about these things. So I think there might be some cases that would that would help i think the first one i would want to bring up is the michael brown case this is obviously huge if you remember when i don't know if anybody has forgotten but the the ferguson uh, riots that occurred because of this case black lives matter really launched because of this case hands up don't shoot Mm -hmm. gained a lot of traction and this is also kind of where all lives matter came from right as a response to sort of the black lives matter coming from that and the way it was generally portrayed was this is a lot of African-Americans in the United States that they could just be walking down the street and they'll be murdered by an officer. That is the assumption that they're making. Yes. Yeah. So 
a lot of that stuff that came out and he is still included on lists that black lives matter supporters and their outlets of a police murder or a police malfeasance or a police brutality on black and brown Americans he's still on that list that they put out even to today you can just just go find a list somewhere you can instagram twitter anywhere you'll find his name on there but there was an 86 page report that came out from the department of justice under eric holder right remember this was during the obama term and since very few people are actually going to read it yeah i thought i might actually read some from it (laughs) so this is from page six i'm going to read a section here so quote Wilson and other witnesses stated that Brown then reached into the SUV through the open driver's window and punched and grabbed Wilson. This is corroborated by bruising on Wilson's jaw and scratches on his neck, the presence of Brown's DNA on Wilson's collar, shirt, and pants, and Wilson's DNA on Brown's palm. While there are other individuals who stated that Wilson reached out of the SUV and grabbed Brown by the neck, prosecutors could not credit their accounts because they were inconsistent with physical and forensic evidence as detailed throughout this report. End quote. So, a lot of that initial narrative was Brown wasn't doing anything. No point was the officer in danger. Well, hold on a second here. He he just said right here, they have that forensic evidence. Right. And the, the difficulty here is a lot of times people don't realize that what you remember from a traumatic situation can be different from what actually happened. And this is one of those cases where just because somebody said that this happened, you can go to any lawyer in the United States and ask them about personal testimony, and they will tell you that it is the least effective form to find out what happened. The least effective form. The most effective form is if you have some type of forensic evidence that promotes some type of video evidence that something happened as it was. Right. Just continuing again from page six, quote, Wilson told prosecutors and investigators that he responded to Brown reaching into the SUV and punching him by withdrawing his gun because he could not access less lethal weapons while seated inside the SUV. Brown then grabbed the weapon and struggled with Wilson to gain control of it. Wilson fired, striking Brown in the hand. End quote. And I'm going to insert sort of my own commentary. So what he's basically saying is Brown reaches in and he's saying, look, I can't access anything else to defend myself, so I went for my gun. That might be the first place where we might say then you need to have something that's less lethal, more readily available. But that's a different discussion. But at the time, that coverage was Brown was never near him. Wilson just shot him out, mm-hmm. out of nowhere. Right. So continuing from page six here, quote, autopsy results in bullet trajectory, skin from Brown's palm on the outside of the SUV door, as well as Brown's DNA on the inside of the driver's door corroborate Wilson's account that during the struggle, Brown used his right hand to grab and attempt to control Wilson's gun. According to three autopsies, Hmm. because one and two weren't good enough, Brown sustained a close range gunshot wound to the fleshy portion of his right hand at the base of his right thumb. Soot from the muzzle of the gun found embedded in the tissue of this wound, coupled with indicia of thermal change from the heat of the muzzle, indicate that Brown's hand was within inches of the muzzle of Wilson's gun when it was fired. That's kind of gross, but I, I appreciate their good use of language. And the definition of that is? Signs, indication, or distinguishing marks. Okay. So the distinguishing marks of thermal change from the heat of the muzzle. Yes. 
indicate that Brown's hand was within inches of the muzzle of Wilson's gun when it was fired. So essentially saying, we know he was right next to it when it fired based off of what was in the car and around the inside of the car because his hand was inside the car with the skin of his hand basically blown into the car. Because basically what happens is whenever a gun is fired, it's basically a controlled explosion. Mm -hmm. That's how it works. So if any part of you is close enough to a gun, you can actually be damaged by the heat from that. Which is very fascinating because that's not going to happen at any other distance. Right. So basically in order to be damaged by heat from the gun, you have to be very, very close. Well, to and I've, I've fired a handgun before. It's not the palm of where you're shooting from that's going to get hot. You can see smoke coming from the tip of the gun. Right. And they recovered the bullet in the side panel at the driver's door. <laughs> Which could only happen if it was fired while in the car. <laughs> right. But if you remember, a lot of those reports were at no point did this happen. They were saying this is not true. Brown was just walking down the street. The officer came out and shot him in the back. That was a lot of the initial reporting, mm-hmm. right? And a lot, and, and it still is a thing going on. And that means that it was the witness accounts they were getting to publish that. Correct. And then, so, you know, a lot of people are saying he was shot in the back when he was running away from him. They So this was sort of the next move mm-hmm. was, look, Brown was running away. Wilson did not need to shoot him, right? He was running away. Why did he, why did he shoot him? Mm. So here's the next section. Again, quote. Brown ran at least 180 feet away from the SUV as verified by the location of bloodstains on the roadway, which DNA analysis confirms was Brown's blood. Brown then turned around and came back towards Wilson, falling to his death approximately 21.6 feet west of the blood in the roadway. End quote. So the the two competing narratives was Brown was running away, Wilson shot him in the back, and then he died. The other one was from Wilson, which he was saying, no, 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 he was charging me. Right. And so, the, and then there were eyewitnesses that supported both sides. So people were t- saying, well, these are the pro police guys and these are the pro BLM guys. But again, those witnesses that said he never went back towards him, well, his DNA said he was 180 feet away and then he was shot 21 feet. So what did he do during that so time? So he had to have moved closer, is what you're saying. So he went away and then charged. Right. And then he turned around. And this is supported by what it says in here about him moving 180 feet away and then moving 21 feet away. Yeah. So basically he was charging for a while, which supports Wilson saying that he told him to stop. He had enough time to tell him to stop and was charged probably 160 feet before he decided to take the shot, which 20 feet is not far away. That is close enough to think I'm physically in danger in the next three seconds. Exactly. And then where he was shot would have been all from facing him. With the exception of the first shot to Brown's hand, all the shots that struck Brown were fired from a distance of more than two feet. So again, he was 180 feet away from him, and then he was running towards him. How do you dispute that? So now here's the question. Does that mean that Michael Brown was callously murdered in the street? There's not a lot of evidence to support that. It appears that the officer Wilson, from everything that he was talking about, from every part of his story, appeared to have been stating what happened. So something else I find interesting is that the time detailed this occurred was on August 9th, 2014, around noon. And the time this report is March 4th, 2015. 
So it took them all the way from August when it happened in the previous year to March of the next year. That is such a long time. And again, this was there was the DOJ, and then there were two more investigations. Right, this was not an uncovered case. <laughs> no, they had to be covered by as many news coverage and intergovernmental as well. Right, and now the point of today is not to argue about you know whether or not this doesn't mean or that you know if you if you believe that. The point is to say, given some of the stuff that we've been reading here, is it a more reasonable to say that okay, we understand why he wasn't he was acquitted, why the officer was acquitted, given what's being read here. Given sort of the, the different analysis, the forensics, the, the DNA, all of that. But the reaction we had was when he was declared acquitted, when, he, when the, the, they came out, they acquitted him, the response was the Ferguson riots, right? That was deciding that they'd been wronged. Because there was only one outcome that would be palatable. The only palatable option was that he be held accountable for first or second degree murder. Right. And that raises societal questions because is it going to be the case where we start accepting, well, as long as the outcome doesn't match what we wanted, we can do whatever we want. Well, there were riots after the 2016 presidential elections. And yet only some people would say that the violence was unwarranted. Meanwhile, I've always been of the opinion that if you're being violent towards others, you've already passed the threshold of what is okay. And I've definitely discussed with different people, some who say that it's never okay and others who say, well, it gets the point across, so I guess it's worth it. And I've so, whoa, okay, I have to stop. So you're pro-violence then. And then sometimes people are shocked, like, what? You're calling me pro-violent? That, that kind of takes a, a call back to our previous episode. Exactly. And... Again, I encourage you to go and read it because there's a summary of the evidence that's at the start, so you don't have to read all 86 pages, but read it. And then at the end of that summary, because I believe that just the summary itself is a few pages, right? It's summary of the evidence. You can just do pages five through nine. Just read those pages and, you know. <laughs> if you have questions, refer further in. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd, I'd love to have, I'd love to hear what people think about it. I'd love to hear what people in, in terms of what that is. For me, though, reading this, going, I don't know how that guy could be convicted, right? I, that it appears that that he was being assaulted by Michael Brown, and that's what it appears like. It looks like he defended himself. It looks like, and and he was called for a crime, so it looks like he did what we expect police to do. Yeah, I, I don't see how you can convict him. And if somebody goes, no, I, I, there was this, and I, I have this detail and this, and then this such and such, and so I, I think he should have been convicted. Let us know. But, Let's talk about it. Exactly. But can you see why maybe this is not a case where if the re result is not Officer Wilson is in jail permanently, America needs to burn, or America is at its root race? It's just a situation where it would be good with a less emotional lens, now that it's been several years past that time, to read through this and critically think about it as a situation that if it were to happen next to me, how would this impact my view? And is it possible that it wasn't what the media told me it was? 
it's worth the conversation. It's worth the technical questions to critically look over it without being pushed by the media to believe something without actually reading the study that took place. Yeah. The next one I want to move on to is uh, the Clinton impeachment. Obviously, this was the big thing in the 90s. Huge, right? The star report. Penn star. The, we sort of had a repeat of it with Mueller. I was just going to say the Trump impeachment. The Clinton impeachment and the Trump impeachment are both high profile cases in that we have a huge amount of ends justifies the means where the means isn't quite clear. Right. And basically what happened was is originally Clinton and uh, his wife, who we all remember, were basically being investigated for their involvement with Whitewater. So he was charged with investigating the Clintons financial dealings with the Whitewater Land Company. So Ken Starr was supposed to just go in and he was supposed to check that. However, he ended up opening it all the way up to the firing of White House travel agents, FBI files. Paula Jones was involved. And during this is when they came upon the Lewinsky conversations. Uh, it was Linda Tripp was the ones who provided him with the taped phone conversations. So what Clinton was impeached on was lying to the jury, right? So he, in his deposition. Perjury. Right. Perjury is what it is. So a much quoted statement, you know, they have the, depends on what the meaning of the word is, is, you know, was, <laughs> <laughs> that's been a long one in politics. Exactly. Oh yeah, yeah. But here's the thing. It's good that we found out that this abuse of power was going on with Lewinsky. We now know about Paula Jones. We know about a lot of the abuses that Bill Clinton allegedly had over his career. We now have a better insight into who the man is, Hillary's conduct during this. We have better insight as the body politic into these things, right? Good. Everybody agrees it's great, right? However, is just opening up in any investigation for any reason, as long as you can investigate him for one thing, you can investigate him for 25. You're supposed to have rights. Right, because this was actually the Democrat response to Republicans, right? When, when Republicans said, hey, Mueller can't be opening up his investigation into everything else. He's just supposed to investigate this. And then you end up with an impeachment that includes every single thing under the sun where no single thing is an impeachable offense. Right, but the, the Democrat response was, if you if you remember that, hey, you did it to us in 94, we're just doing it to you now in 2019. And what Trump got impeached for was not what he was supposed to investigate, because it was a counterintelligence investigation, which is supposed to be narrow, and all of a sudden it turned into a criminal investigation. But none of the people who was supposed to be investigating <laughs> were... So there was a huge complication. But you, if you ask, a lot of people would say... No, 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 it's very good. We, we needed to know that Trump was doing this. We need, right? So that outcome is that. Same way as this, that outcome of, you know, we needed to know about Lewinsky. We needed to know about Paula Jones. We needed to know about these women, right? But once we start applying it broadly, where does it end? It's the situation where people think that they have a right to see President Trump's tax records, but at the same point, that was never a requirement for becoming president in the first place. Right. So is it now the time to simply run in and just any person at any time? Side note, I wouldn't mind if we knew 
exactly what people did while they're in office to become millionaires. But I also understand that it would be a huge privacy issue for me to just dig into their finances to find that out. Hire a few hackers or get anonymous to do it would be highly unethical and illegal. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, so I think moving it from that to something a lot more recent, you know, because we've, we've talked about what happens at that high level, you know, the Michael Brown case, we're talking about department of justice, right? We're talking about the Clinton impeachment during the me too movement. There was a piece that came out. I believe it was babe.net. I never heard of the site before, but that's probably where it came out. It was either babe.net or babe.net.com. Why? What is that supposed to support? What website is that? It sounds creepy. It appears to just be a pop culture site. And this is where it was published, and it was obviously an anonymous report. Well, it's not as creepy as I thought it was. That's a good sign. Right. It was an anonymous report that someone alleging against the comedian Aziz Ansari that she had been sexually assaulted by him. And the general story was that throughout the night, she'd had been having a good time with him, but he kind of was pushy about sexual acts that they did. They like, she did say yes, but she didn't really want to. And he should have seen from the body language that, you know, these things were not what she wanted. Well, it's really creepy. And we have laws for that, except people might think that they don't go far enough. Like she technically said yes, but unless I'm pretty sure in some states you would require threat of violence for it to be considered criminal. So the the text message was put Barry Weiss, uh, who's um, from the New York Times. I I believe she doesn't work there anymore, actually. I think she left um, recently, but pointed out there was a text message. Last night might have been fun for you, but it wasn't for me was said by the individual. So this is the individual talking. Last night might have been fun for you, but it wasn't for me. You ignored clear nonverbal cues. You kept going with advances. You had to have noticed I wasn't comfortable. End of uh, the text. Again, did she allege anything that was actually illegal? I don't think so. Like I said, it's extremely creepy. Right. But it's hard to... It is. But it's hard to quantify exactly other than how creepy and gross it is. But then you had a lot of feminists going... I don't understand why men are saying that they're not mind readers. That's not what we're saying. Well, when you read that, you get the idea that if I don't read your cues correctly, then I'm going to accuse you of sexual assault. That makes people really nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a number of people. I've definitely read some articles where there are ladies who are saying that when the Me Too movement came out, they lost all ability to be able to have a fun night out with the guys or to get close with anyone or to discuss anything in a business or otherwise situation because they cannot be trustworthy. Not the men specifically, the men don't trust the women. Right. And then, and that breakdown starts to affect the society. So, you you know, obviously we would love to end piggish behavior by men. Absolutely. Creepy men is not a defensible thing. My sister (laughs) was telling me yesterday about how She walks her dog down the street and cars honk their horns. It literally happened while we were on the phone. I'm like, what was that? And she's like, oh, I was just being honked at. Sometimes they put the window down and literally cat call me. And she was like, I was going to go grab a coffee in a local area, uh, in a local coffee shop. 
And this guy was like, you know, dropping. She ran to two different guys that dropped a line. And one of them, she actually mentioned, well, I have a boyfriend. And he was like, well, do you want to get my number anyway? So that when you break up with him or whenever you become available, we can talk. And I was just like floored at how creepy all this was. And she, her response to me was that she thinks that it happens because it's in a little bit more rundown area. And I'm thinking, well, there is definitely something to point out that if she was walking down my street in a somewhat suburban area, that would definitely not be happening. Yeah, because nobody talks to each other in the suburbs, right? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You know, again, you're talking about the Me Too movement. There were people who were doing things that obviously needed to be stopped. Obviously needed to have something happen to them professionally at the very least. Absolutely. There are some high profile cases of that. But are we talking, you know, I think uh, as Bill Burr put it, he goes, at the beginning, you couldn't believe what was going on. And then by the end, it just sounded like bad dates. Oof. Right. And, you know, it's obviously meant for a more comedic setting, but it does carry sort of that little truth of it of where are we drawing this line? Right. It hit a point where it was like, what line? Right. You know, did he force her to stay there? She talked about how she felt like he was demanding things. But at the same time, do we expect adults to be able to say, hey, look, I'm leaving. I'm not comfortable with this, right? Those sorts of questions, I'm not going to say whether or not I know that legally this, this, for this case, legally this, this, this. What I'm going to be saying is that we should be thinking about what actually happens in terms of men and women, women and women, men and men, whoever we're talking about dating, that for those things, are we applying an outcome that we want for everything and then saying anything that doesn't match that outcome is bad, awful, terrible? They should be deciding what a good outcome is and then holding that as the criteria. Right. But again, in terms of how you are, we are we saying that hookups are OK as long as both people consent? We have to decide what is consent. We have to decide what things are permissible, what things are not, you know. If you're saying, I want a guy to know what I want without me telling him, well, then if the guy guesses wrong, are you going to be are you gonna be pushing in on him? <laughs> are you allowed to hold him accountable in the court of law in a he said, she said case? Exactly. And I think probably the biggest case, and this was a little bit more complicated because there's a lot that goes behind it into what was going on. This was one of the biggest ones that's happened recently. It's huge. It's uh, talked about everything. It's a Citizens United case. Right. So we've moved from sort of a more the more personal, you know, individuals meeting together in terms of the Me Too movement. I want to move into is kind of the people's actions, but on a much larger scale. And that's what Citizens United sort of addressed, which is what happened is, is Citizens United was a company that wanted to show a movie, which was Hillary's America, I believe it was. Uh, no, Hillary the movie. That's what it was. They wanted to show the movie. And... The FEC hit them with a campaign finance violation. What type of law would allow them to hold them accountable? It was part of the McCain-Feingold reforms. And basically what that said is, is that within certain times of an election or a primary, independent expenditures have a cap. Independent expenditure is whenever you make, it loosely put is, anytime you make an expenditure on an election... Right? When you're electioneering, spending money, giving speeches, hosting people, whatever it is, any communication about it, but it is not part 
of the official campaign, whether you're supporting it or not supporting it. So for example, if I run a company and I say Donald Trump for America, right, then that's an independent expenditure because Donald Trump didn't tell me to go do it. It's not part of his campaign. I'm not sure. It's independent. So an independent expenditure is whenever you spend money independent of the campaign, but on an election. So the main thing here is most people assume that there were two things that happened. Corporations were declared people is the first one that for some reason, a corporation was now like, just like any other person. So I'm, you know, Matthew, your will. And then there's Amazon, my friend, Amazon, he's a handy friend with constitutional rights, right? That that's how people kind of assumed that what they meant by corporate personhood. And they were saying that, look, corporations are not people. So they don't have first amendment, free speech rights or constitutional rights. They're not a person. The constitution is for people. Mm -hmm. And the second one was sort of, look, money is not speech. Speech is speech. They were just, that was their, when you speak, that's speech. When you have money, that's money. They're not the same thing. Sure. That was the general attack on Citizens United, right? And so Citizens United was ruled. The caps on independent expenditures were lifted and restrictions on spending and on politics were generally gotten rid of. So there's a couple of important concepts. The first one is corporate personhood. This does not mean that they're a, like a new person. It's a legal concept from several hundred years ago that you can kind of use it for expediency. So when I want to sue Apple, right, I can just say I'm suing Apple and I just put Apple, Apple Inc. I'm suing. Well, it happens all the time. You have the Samsung Apple Wars forever. Right. If you didn't do that, you'd actually have to list every single stakeholder and all Given how fast stocks change, every time you got to court, the list would be out of date. Also, there are plenty of times where LLCs, they're anonymous. You don't know who's behind that until you get somebody in court defending the LLC. Right. And think about why people go into LLCs or corporations. It's to often protect their personal business. Their personal valuables. From their personal valuables, right. So I have a business, my business over here. And then on this side is like my house mm-hmm. and like books I own. It's The difference is when you go into the court of law, the only reason that your personal assets could be put into a settlement is if you are found to have merged your business and personal uses of your personal assets and mixing and matching assets. So using a business credit card for both personal use and business use. And if that were to be brought to the court, the judge could, quote, pierce the veil and then allow all of your personal assets to be up for grabs in a settlement. So basically, there are reasons that this sort of thing is created. It's also useful just for the fact that Apple is not being sued. We don't have to get every single stakeholder down to the courthouse, right? Could you imagine if you know Amazon had to bring every single stakeholder to every single court case? There'd be a lot less stakeholders. they would do nothing else. There'd be nothing else that they did all day. Yeah. Right. So, you know, when you talk about that company name, so basically there were several other cases that the court had decided as well that went in on this. One of them was basically that different restrictions on speech could be done based on corporate identity. So it was a law that was passed, Michigan law, 
So the the court overturned Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce, which was a 1990 case. It had a lot of different restrictions on speech-related spending based on a corporate identity, as well as a portion of McConnell versus FEC, which was from 2003, that had restricted corporate spending on electioneering communication. So after Citizens United, labor unions, corporations, nonprofits, any groups, they are now free to spend money on electioneering communications and to directly advocate for the election or defeat of candidates. Now, before, during the McCain-Feingold reforms, basically they, they said only news companies can have any unlimited stuff. They, they separated news companies. So basically after 2010, is post-Citizens United, then before that you have the McCain-Feingold, which was in 2002. So what happened is the ruling came with the dissent by Justice Stevens. And yeah, that was a dissent. <laughs> he was not happy uh, about uh, the ruling. Can you summarize some of his points? Yeah. So Stevens basically argued that, first off, the court has never suggested that quid pro quo must be vote buying or bribes, right? As, so his first sort of argument was, just because it's not an explicit Quid pro quo doesn't mean it's not corruption or bribery. So basically saying if somebody goes and donates $50 million, someone's super PAC, then that person may then kind of have the expectation, well, I'm doing this and I'm not expecting anything. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. For example, somebody might cite the fact that Bloomberg gave millions to the DNC and all of a sudden he's a speaker at the DNC convention, right? Mm. He's not a current governor or anything like that, right? He's just a billionaire, donated a ton of money. And then they're like, well, you get a speaking slot, right? So that he would kind of argue that the specific thing that he stated was that the court held that there was over $3 million in this particular case, captain versus uh, 18 Massey coal company. It was a judicial race, 3 million in independent expenditures were raised and it gave sort of the impression that, well, how is the judge going to be impartial if all this money's being spent because he has to recuse himself with certain things? So what happens if the spender, you know, is he recusing himself and the judge be impartial to people who are raising money? That was sort of the first thing that he brought up. And furthering on that, he was saying that the government has the duty to prevent the appearance of corruption in elections, meaning that even if there isn't actually corruption going on, if the public thinks that there's corruption going on, it does the same thing. Judges have to stand up to the exact same level. Like they're not supposed to sign on something if they are currently inhibited by alcohol or some other drug. Even just the potential for looking like it was impropriety can put you in hot water. Exactly. So what happened is he's saying the appearance can be an actual issue in terms of it will erode the electoral process. And then he also was saying that the majority failed to recognize the dangers of just corporate money, corporate influence, saying, because basically what happened is that Austin case had held that the prevention of corruption was a compelling government interest, which is part of the strict scrutiny that courts applies, which is just one of the prongs of that test is the government has to demonstrate that they have a compelling interest and that the law is tailored to that interest. So he's arguing, well, preventing corruption, obviously the government has a reason to do that. And he's then saying, well, if the government can stop corruption, then they can regulate stuff that affects corruption. 
This is one of those things. And sort of his last point was he was saying that the majority ignored the rights of shareholders. There are cases that protect individuals from legally compelled payment of union dues to support political speech. The law should help protect shareholders from funding speech that they oppose. Kind of an argument that, you know, if my dad's a teacher and he has a labor union and that labor union sends money to Elizabeth Warren and my dad doesn't agree with Elizabeth Warren, then we should be helping to protect him from funding that speech that he opposed. And he was basically arguing that there's other things we can do rather than allow independent expenditures. So that was the dissent. The majority was arguing that the First Amendment keeps the government from interfering in the marketplace of ideas and rationing speech. And it's not up to the government or the courts to be the one who plays how much speech is fair. There's been a lot of cases where the government has just destroyed your rights because they decide that, well, this is fair or that's fair. And they end up destroying just your civil liberties. So they were saying, look, it's not up to us. And what they were saying is corporations are groups of people. Sure. That's what it is. So that they're saying, look, you have the freedom of association. You have the freedom of speech. And that's not just media because there's freedom of the press is mentioned separate. But you also have freedom of speech, freedom to assemble, freedom to petition the government. They're saying that there is more than just the media gets to say whatever they want. It's actually that your associations are protected. So even though that there might be an effect of large corporate expenditures, those people are actually determining where money goes in order to inform people about what they're picking. Better example, that's the NRA. Right? Everybody knows the NRA. Everybody has a great time with them. Everybody has an opinion about the NRA. It's like mentioning Jesus. Everyone has an opinion about <laughs> Jesus. Right. So, for example, in the 2016 election, you'll, you'll often hear people say the NRA spent $50 million. Boom. Right? They, huge amount of money, right? And you're going, $50 million? Holy crap. I don't have $50 million. I don't have, I don't have 100 friends that have even close to that amount of money, right? But what actually happened is the NRA donated about a million or so to candidates, and then they spent about 48 million-ish on electioneering, on independent expenditures. Wow. A lot of that is the NRA distribute the NRA grades on gun control, right? So when there's gun laws, they give each politician a grade, and then they send out a huge amount of this thing on that. Now, obviously, that's communication that's used to inform me as a voter, because let's say I'm a big pro-2A guy which I happen to be the NRA saying, Oh, this guy's a B plus. Oh, great. He's a B plus. Now, if I'm a gun control advocate, wait a minute, he's a B plus. I don't know about voting for that. I don't know about that. In fact, Bernie Sanders used to walk around, you know, a lot of Democrats, they go, I you know I have an F from the NRA. That's why you should vote for me. You know, <laughs> the NRA hates me. <laughs> I'm the guy you need to do gun reform. And then there are some people who they don't like the NRA, even though they are pro two a, so they're like, actually, that doesn't mean anything to me. Mm-hmm. And they're saying that, look, when you have speech, there's no such thing as too much of it. Too much speech? Right. The court was holding that the government saying, well, this is enough of that speech is not a good thing. And I think the best way that it was summed up is Glenn Greenwald was writing and he was asking sort of these questions that when do corporations have rights and when do they not? Because if you think that corporations don't have constitutional rights, do you believe the FBI can walk into CNN and search them without cause? Can the government seize whatever they want from the offices of labor unions? If you have a local corner store that's incorporated, can the government just 
seize your stuff, right? Because again, it's a corporation. It's not a person. They don't have constitutional rights. Now, many times when I hear this response, I hear, well, no, 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 we're talking about, you know, we're talking about the millions and billions of dollars that get spent, right? They hear corporation and they think Amazon, Apple, Bank of America, right? I mean, what, what what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say uh, corporation? What's the first thing that pops into your head? The first thing is evil. The second is money, <laughs> which is funny because I don't personally believe that corporations are evil. However, my first inclination is towards what I'm told. Right. And then again, also under this law, we're talking about labor unions. So SEIU, AFL-CIO, those guys are included too. And they represent the will of their members. That's one of the reasons you join a labor union is you get together for better power, right? That's that's what you do. Mm -hmm. So... Just to give an overview of this, there's about 1.5 million nonprofit organizations in the United States. That includes public charities, private foundations, and chambers of commerce, fraternal organizations, civic leagues. Now, not all of them are legally able to comment on elections. There are differences between a 501c3 and a 501c4, for example, Mm -hmm. and what you can do to maintain each one of those ones. But think about the fact that there's 1.5 million of those, and there are about 30 million small businesses in the country which is 99.9% of all United States businesses, right? And a small business is anybody with fewer than 500 employees. And I'm pretty sure that that group of companies employs almost 50% of the country. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's roughly, it's a little bit under 60 million people, right? Did those people lose their rights because they are now in a corporation? I mean, if you and three other guys, did you suddenly lose right to unreasonable search and seizure because you're in a corporation? Well, then we'd have to claim what we have as part of our personal rights. Right. So when we bring it back to that corporate personhood, people talking about, we don't have those, it's for people only. Well, we're talking now about the process of having an economy. We're talking about the process of applying laws to people rather than simply, look, the outcome would be, we obviously don't want corruption in politics. Nobody's for that. But... Does having the government step in on that day-to-day level, it might give us the outcome we want for a few years or for a while. Well, as far as corruption is concerned, the government is supposed to have checks and balances between the three branches of government. But on a personal one-to-one level, I would say we don't want to have our individual stuff chucked into some type of government entity because they decided that they could take whatever they wanted. They could take whatever they wanted because it's part of a corporation. Nobody wants to have their rights violated because they were working for a corporation at that time. Exactly. And, and you know, the average number of employees in a small business is about 10. That speaks to how many companies there are where people spin up companies for just a few people managing an asset. But if you think about it, if it, you know, if you've got 10 people and then those 10 people all have kind of the same politics, is that an independent expenditure if they put up a Trump flag in their house? What they do on their own time is up to them, as long as they're not doing it on company time and being paid to put up the Trump flag. Right, exactly. But again, if that company decides to do so, are we saying that that one should be uplifted, but this other one should, who's making that decision? And this is where you can see a lot of that majority reasoning going, hey, look, We are not the arbiters of speech. And now you're talking about the Goodyear 
situation where there was a news story about them telling people that wearing Black Lives Matter or pro-Biden Harris clothing or hats is acceptable, but all lives matter or a Trump hat, make America great again is not acceptable. Or at the very least, the situation that they would be okay with having one set be visible until they realized the other set was visible. And then now they can't have any type of clothing that's unacceptable. How do you tell which amount of Biden-Harris shirts are the right amount of speech? Right? Too much speech, not enough speech. Is speech violence? Oh, call back to a previous episode. Exactly. And here's an important thing to remember when you hear people talking about this. When you hear corporations and spending, remember, it's not just big corporations when someone says corporations. It includes all legal corporations, mm. not just the big evil ones that you think about. Also the good ones, the ethical ones. Right. And at no point did the dissent say that corporate personhood was not a thing. At no point did they say that money is not speech. They agreed with those things. They just simply said the government has the compelling interest. So even the critique of this was off base. The critique was off base because the dissent didn't say what many of the critiques said. But you have to remember that even the people who said, no, 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 this is the wrong decision on the court. They were saying, well, the reason is the government has a good reason to regulate it. Not that corporations do not have rights that go along with them. So give me your full summary of the situation. So my summary of the situation is that when you're talking about an election or politics in a country that is free and that holds the power in the populace's hands, the way that that population communicates their feelings, opinions, and ideas require money, require time, and require resources. If a government starts imposing limitations on any one of those things, inherent bias, corruption, and censorship occurs because you're trusting that a government is going to correctly apply across the board all these different things. Question that's going on here is not whether or not the outcome is going to be good. The question is, do you have free speech or do you not on this subject? The answer is yes or no. You can have bad outcomes. We've talked about this before, right? That there are sometimes things that we have to live with because we have a certain viewing of the way society should be structured. So, you know, when you want to be free, freedom comes with responsibilities, right? Absolutely. So when you're saying look, people have free speech, then people have free speech. Uninhibited. Right. The government doesn't get to come in and go, hey, you've had too much free speech for today. That's, that's that. We're done with that. Right. And again, think about this. When this came out in 2010, people were like, this is the end. We are going to be run by the corporations. Who are the two big candidates right now on the right and the left? Not who's like the presidential candidates, but like who's like the, the big movement on the right wing? Donald Trump. Right. The Trumpism on the left. It's Bernie Sanders. Sanders was mostly funded by direct contributions. He was a grassroots candidate that was not considered an establishment pick. Trump was not an establishment pick who came in 
running against multiple establishment picks. Ted Cruz was the conservative establishment pick. Jeb Bush was the moderate right Republican establishment pick, right? Those were the two front runners. It was supposed to be Cruz versus Jeb, and we were going to see what happened, right? And all of a sudden, Trump came in like a wrecking ball. A literal wrecking ball. He wrecked everything. But, no, I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> that speech question is what matters. Not whether or not something could go wrong. But whether or not you have free speech is what it is. And on the reverse side, communication about politics requires money. Running a YouTube channel costs money. Running a newspaper costs money. The New York Times runs a story about how Trump did such as it right. Are they making a campaign contribution to Biden? No, they're running a story. Just because it helps Biden does not make it like, okay, well, you can only have 10 stories that are critical of Trump today. Right? You can't do that. Yeah, they're perfectly happy with 97%. <laughs> yeah. Right. So the summary that I generally have for this is when we're talking about process, we're saying you have free speech. That free speech means you need to be able to exercise that free speech. You need to be able to communicate that speech. And you need to be able to create and disseminate anything you need to send it to whoever. And that the government does not have the ability to tell you which kinds are okay and how much. That's a process argument because we're saying the process of disseminating speech goes this way. To change it, you got to do something else, but this is how it goes. This is the way it's set up. And the outcomes are going to be what they are until somebody changes it through the other process we have for changing this. Which requires going through the process regardless of what the prior outcome was. Right. That's a process argument. An outcome argument is, look, what if there's corruption? And if people think there's corruption, then that could be bad. So we're going to just, we, we can do whatever we need to, to do this, to do that, to stop them, to censor this, to uplift Which that. Which requires not going through the process because you'd be rushing the process through something that's not been okayed. Right. You're determining what is going on by the outcomes that you're predicting or think or have happened rather than the process of actually putting people mm -hmm. through. Well, what happens is people talk about how there's lots of corruption in Congress and the response becomes, well, we need to elect this person in the executive branch. And I'm thinking what you need is to institute term limits. And then what I hear back is that well, that will take too long or the courts aren't going to hold them accountable. Right. You know, you can make any sort of argument as to why well, this is a good outcome. I like this outcome, right? People wanted the outcome from Michael Brown. They liked the outcome of the Clinton impeachment. They said that Aziz was a jerk and therefore should be punished, right? They said all those things. A lot of people agree with them, right? These weren't small little things that I've pulled out of like, you know, in my neighborhood, this person said this to the, right? These are big national things that a lot of people had opinions on. At the end of the day, even though these are heavy things with lots of opinions, the reality is that you need to go through the legal process to affect long-lasting legal outcomes. Right. And if you just say, look, I want this outcome, then working back from that, you can radically mess up a lot of other things that we enjoy and are good that we like because you're attempting to affect a certain outcome. 
This happens all the time with the executive branch because you end up with certain times where the Senate will give powers to the president that have never existed before. And then what you have to realize is they've just created powers that will exist for the next president to get. And you don't even know who that is. Right. Well, I mean, you had they, they got rid of the filibuster rule for judges, right? And that was the big thing. They got rid of that filibuster rule. They got rid of the 60-person the sixty person rule for voting for judges. And when the Democrats did that, they were like, look, this is we're doing this. And then all of a sudden, the Republicans had the majority, and they just were voting people through. And they never imagined that that could possibly happen. Right. And because they wanted certain outcomes for the justices to put on the Supreme Court... And now you have the situation where the Trump administration is able to say that they've appointed 200 judges and two Supreme Court justices in four years, which is huge. Right. Absolutely. Bulldozing. But imagine if you still had to get 60 votes, you probably would. Probably would have gotten a quarter. Right. So I think a lot of this has been, this is a lot more nebulous subject. It's a lot harder to talk about because it's very complicated. There's a lot involved. You can't do everything in, you know, roughly an hour-ish without going too much. So I think the question, again, outcomes versus process, think about applying that when you start hearing stories in the media, in your own life, in your local politics and national politics. Think about, am I approaching this from process of getting this situation resolved or underway or taken care of? Or am I looking at the outcome that I want and trying to make the process fit that outcome? Thanks for listening. And if you have a comment, question, or rant, we'd love to hear it. Email us at bluestateconversations at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and find our articles on Medium. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. No matter what state you're in, blue, red, or purple, there is always room at the table to discuss your views in a way that lets us all grow.